TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Israel hasn't had many friends in its neighborhood since the country was founded in 1948. The Camp David Accords are more than 40 years old now when Israel and Egypt signed a peace treaty. And it's been a quarter century since Israel and Jordan decided to have a peaceful coexistence. But there is one more friendly in the region for Israel as it signs a peace agreement with the United Arab Emirates. Joining the crisis next door to talk about what this means for Israel and its Arab neighbors is Ryan Boll a Middle East and North Africa analyst with a geopolitical risk firm Stratfor. He's also written for Time and Salon, among other publications. Ryan, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Oh, thanks for having me, Jason. Ryan, the peace agreement between Israel and the UAE is being hailed in the corridors of power in Jerusalem, Abu Dhabi, and Washington, but not so much elsewhere in the world. What brought Israel and the UAE together? Well, there were a number of big drivers. Uh, the, the first big driver was obviously a mutual antipathy towards Iran, uh, something that the Emiratis have had a, an understanding of ever since they were founded. Uh, the Emirati-Iranian relationship really began with a rough start under the, uh, the Iranian Shah in 1971, uh, just days before the UAE was meant to be decolonized by Britain. The Shah seized several islands uh, that the Emiratis were intending on being part of their territory. Uh, and ever since then, even after the Islamic Revolution, those islands have remained in Iranian hands. And it has been a focus, in particular of Abu Dhabi, of recovering those islands. And they've always been looking for allies who might give them a position where they might be able to do so. Uh, the Israelis, of course, problem with the Iranians ever since the Shah was overthrown. And uh, that, that mutual antipathy was probably one of the biggest drivers together over these few years. Um, but other things have changed as well, and particularly on the Emirati side, a changing domestic environment. It used to be that a lot of Arab governments and Muslim governments throughout the world would tie their legitimacy to their championing, championing of the, uh, the Palestinian cause. Uh, they wanted to be part of the process that would see either a Palestinian state formed in the former mandate or of, of uh, that with the borders of 1948 or a second state next to Israel, one or the other. Um, that was really important for many Arab and Muslim uh, citizens throughout the world. But decades have gone on now. There hasn't been a lot of progress on that front. Other bigger problems have come along. Uh, new generations have been born, many of whom kind of look at the Palestinian issue. Uh, the way I think of it is kind of like the way that uh, many Americans view the rainforest. They, they think of it as something important, but they're not necessarily willing to give up anything for it, let alone, you know, cut off relations with Brazil over it. Um, they sim it's something that they still think is morally valuable, but not something that they're willing to change their own lifestyles or, or put their own, you know, create their own risks to try to achieve. 
Uh, and so with that changing status of the Palestinian question, you started to get over the past 10 years a situation where Israel and Iran, uh, Israel and the United Arab Emirates uh, could start to feel one, and out, one another out on a more covert level. And even in 2009, back when I was still living in, in the Emirates, uh, we heard rumors of Israeli athletes showing up in Dubai, you know, Israeli celebrities um, appearing inside of the Emirates with unofficial sanctions. Um, even when Mossad killed a Hamas commander in Dubai 10 years ago, uh, that created a very disruption. But then it rather quickly went away. Saudis did not attempt to retaliate against the Israelis in any fashion. Uh, what happened is that they pivoted their relationship to make it even more covert. Uh, and then over the past 10 years, these little small ties, they keep coming out, they keep coming out. And the Emiratis reached a point where they believed that their domestic population was ready to accept normalization. And over the past, what we now know has been 18 months, uh, the United States has been helping shepherd this relationship into public in a moment that seems to be mutually beneficial for all three countries for, for various reasons. Ryan, the UAE agreed to the deal, provided that Israel does not annex more land in the West Bank from the Palestinians. Uh, but the UAE has also been accused of selling out by other Palestinian supporters and other Arab nations. Uh, do you think that's a fair accusation against the UAE as part of this deal? Well, I think what the Emiratis have done is they've changed their view of how to champion the Palestinians. A Palestinian state is one option for them, but they're actually embracing some formulas that are actually something like a century old. Um, the idea of a one-state solution, that is that there's just either it's a binational state or, or uh, something along the lines of, where the demographic majority might even be Palestinian. That was something that was an original plan from the, the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, the Emiratis seem to be going back to that as saying the best way for us to champion the Palestinians is not so much by advocating for a second state, which they believe could end up under the control of a group like Hamas, who is friendly with Iran, and from an Emirati standpoint, uh, that would not be desirable. Uh, but also, if they can get the Palestinians to get citizens' rights or voting rights within Israel, they believe that's the way to secure uh, a Palestinian future. Um, that idea is, is part of the reason that they seem to be a little bit less concerned about annexation, because if annexation does happen, Israel sort of ends up in that situation where they need to decide what to do with the Palestinians whose territories they're taking over, whether that would be through nationalization or some sort of informal uh, citizen rights that would, that would increase their political status from where they are right now. Um, the Emiratis have sort of taken this, this attitude that the Palestinian political project for a second state really hasn't gone anywhere and is unlikely to achieve its goals, in part because the Palestinians themselves are, are politically dysfunctional. So there is plenty of people out there who want to make hay of the idea that the Emiratis have moved away from the two-state solution. They've moved peace initiative that was championed uh, about 20 years ago by Saudi Arabia and King Abdullah that would see two states, that the Emiratis did sign up for that. But in a certain sense, the Emiratis are simply moving to a place where they think that sort of idea is no longer achievable. The, the Palestinians are not ready for a, a, their own independent state with their dysfunctions between the Fatah movement and Hamas making such a state unviable, and that the Israelis are unlikely to accept it anyway. So the best way to actually champion the Palestinians is through rights inside of Israel itself. The Middle East has convulsed over the past decade, perhaps as much as any other time in history. Civil wars in Syria and Yemen continue to drag on. 
political upheaval in Lebanon. It feels like the Arab-Israeli wars of decades past have been relegated to history now and that Israel is no longer the focal point of joint enmity among its Arab neighbors. Is the region starting to accept Israel as a neighbor? Uh, yes, I think so. And uh, as you said, those major factors of history are the reason that the, the Palestinian cause has, has dropped down on the priority list. Uh, even places that are very much interested in continuing the conflict, like Iran and Syria, have their own problems. And in fact, even places like Syria were starting to reach out to Israel because they realized there was no military solution to Israel. There, there was no way that they could erase the state and, and bring things back to the status quo ante of, of 1948. So even in 2010, we know that there were some negotiations between the Syrians and the Israelis that might have seen a peace treaty emerge with the Israelis trading away the Golan for, for a peace treaty with Syria. But then the Arab Spring happened and that process fell apart. Um, and, and so that's where we are now after almost 70, 80 years of, of enmity. You have multiple generations, including amongst the Palestinians, who don't see uh, continuous struggle against Israel as, as something that will ever work. And they're starting to come to terms with the idea that they need to find some sort of a middle ground. Um, not just uh, the Emiratis are exploring new ties, but we've got Oman, who invited uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to appear there in a surprise appearance in, in 2018. We've got Bahrain that has hosted many uh, Israeli officials on both security level and an economic level. Qatar maintains uh, uh, relations with Israel and is a major champion of the humanitarian cause in Gaza. Uh, and Saudi Arabia has also kept its, its door open to further exploring ties with the Israelis uh, on an economic front and on a security front. There's just too many benefits for many of these states uh, to continue to try to isolate Israel. And there's not as many gains, not as many benefits for them uh, of trying to keep up the enmity as there used to be. So we are seeing a moment where Israeli normalization is the likely trend for the future, uh, especially within the Muslim world. Ryan, you wrote a profile piece for Time in 2019 about Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, the younger brother to President Khalifa bin Zayed, who's essentially ruled the UAE due to his brother's poor health, known as MBZ. How critical of a force is he in this peace agreement with Israel? And what does he want to, where does he want to take the UAE in the future? Well, I think the, uh, without Mohammed bin Zayed, this uh, process would be pretty unlikely to happen. Uh, we don't know what uh, his older brother might have thought of the agreement. He, as you mentioned, he's been incapacitated for, for many years now. Uh, but Mohammed bin Zayed has been at the forefront of this Arab modernization push. And for him, he defines modern in a combination of the Western nation-state with Arab traditions and Muslim traditions kind of underpinning it. Uh, and so what it means for him is that they remain a monarchy, they remain in their, poli uh, their political system, but economically and socially, they function a lot like a country might in Europe or the Americas. Uh, and as part of that process, that's why he was willing to push for normalization with Israel. Um, Israel has economic and social gains for the Emiratis. Uh, on a social level, uh, normalizing with Israel allows the Emiratis to kind of shepherd their society away from some of that pan-Islamist and pan-Arabist ideologies that have become something of a threat to the monarchy. They've always been a threat to the monarchy, but they, they now feel after the Arab Spring that they need to, to take those forces. And by provoking them with the normalization deal, they, they draw them out, they're able to isolate them, and they also get many bodies to, to move away from those ideologies as it now becomes clear that the state isn't going to be protecting those ideologies anymore. It's not going to be um, bringing those along. Um, 
So I do think that M, uh, MBZ, as he is called, uh, was a critical force in making this happen because his unique worldview is one in which the region must change. He wants to be in the driver's seat of change for his country, and he's willing to take risks, some major risks, uh, to make that happen. And, and he's done that in Yemen, where he willing to send Emirati troops into Yemen was to bring the Emirati armed forces up to modern standards to give them a taste of what a real war is like, to overcome some of the social challenges that they've got at home, uh, and to unify the country into out of tribes into a real nation by, by having like this nationalist war. Um, and, and the normalization deal is something similar, in, in which he is challenging Emiratis to change their mindsets and challenging the region to change their mindsets and, and to move out of the shadows of the past and start to evolve into this, this Muslim, Islamist uh, nation-state model that he's developing. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the peace accord between Israel and the UAE with Ryan Bold a Middle East and North Africa analyst with geopolitical risk firm Stratfor. Yemen has obviously been a grind for the war over there with uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE fighting against the Houthis. Uh, Has MBZ risked any of his political capital by plunging UAE into this war? And also, how do you think Israel views UAE's performance against the Houthis? Uh, The war has pretty much been a standstill. Right. I and mean, very early on, we saw the Emiratis start to pull back. Uh, there was a, uh, a missile attack that killed dozens of Emirati soldiers near the front lines early on in the war, and that caused the Emiratis to, to scale back their involvement. And what the UAE has decided to do, which they seem to be a fair bit better at, is develop proxy forces that they can then leave behind and support with less exposure to themselves uh, that would allow them to achieve their strategic goal. So in the stance of going in trying to fight a big war on their own, that hasn't been all that successful for the Emirati Armed Forces. What has been successful is what the special forces and covert groups have been able to do with the Southern Transitional Council, the, the separatist southernist group that they built up as an ally who has now taken and held the territory. And, and while they're doing that at the, uh, the expense of the supposedly allied government of Yemen that's fighting the Houthis, they're also doing that in a way where if that allied government of Yemen ever collapses, it was already very weak before the civil war. It continues to weaken just from uh, many different factors uh, internally. But if that ever does happen, the STC will be there to take over southern Yemen, be a friendly power to uh, the UAE, and be able to hold off the Houthis. And in that sense, I think the Israelis are probably rather impressed with the ability of the Emiratis. Um, and the Emiratis, of course, the UAE and Israel are always focused on Iran. And up until this point, the only major power able to put together really capable proxies has been Iran, like they did in Hezbollah, like they're attempting to do with the Houthis. If the unified government of Yemen of, of President Hadi does collapse at some point, and the SDC does take over South Yemen, if the Emiratis may, uh, are still the, the patrons of that new potential southern state, well, the relationship between the Emiratis and the Israelis kind of transfers over, and the Israelis suddenly have a friendly power on the Gulf of Aden that allows them to to balance Iranian influence in northern Yemen. From the standpoint of having a potential ally in southern uh, southern Yemen through the SDC, uh, that is something that I think the Israelis view with, with some as a, a somewhat of a success of what the Emiratis are trying to do. One of the biggest obstacles for Israel in its dealings with Iran and a potential strike against Iran's nuclear capabilities has been distance. How big of an issue is it 
where Israel would now potentially have a much closer forward base in the UAE against Iran. And how worried should Tehran be about that? Well, the Iranians will, will view this with great alarm. They will assume the Israelis are deploying assets to the UAE for the first strike on Iran itself. It's still an open question of whether or not the Emiratis would actually need to allow that. The Emiratis still have the Americans in the country. That's a much more formidable force. The Israeli Air Force is capable, but they, they simply don't have the numbers or the ability for a sustained campaign that you'd really need to knock out the Iranian nuclear program. So at the moment, the Emiratis might hesitate just because if they bring in the Israelis and Israelis trigger a war that drags in the Emiratis, that might convince the Americans, especially if there's a changeover in the administration in November, if, if, if uh, Joe Biden wins the election. Uh, if that does happen, it might let the Americans sidestep the conflict and say this is an Emirati-Israeli affair. So from that standpoint, the Emiratis might say we should keep the, the Israelis at arm's length within our own territory. And if the Israelis are going to carry out a first strike, the Israelis and the Emiratis can provide a unified front to the Americans that this first strike is also an American problem and the Americans need to join in on the campaign. So diplomatically, they're strengthened. Militarily, there's not necessarily as much of a change as one might expect. It seems like the U.S. has pulled back since the Obama administration and only further under Trump when it comes to the Middle East. Uh, do you think that Israel and the Gulf states like the UAE are worried about a detached U.S. perhaps emboldening Iran in the region? I think that uh, the Iranians have their own domestic problems, and the sanctions campaign has been pretty severe, uh, and, and there's been a lot of pushback to Iranian influence throughout the region in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria. Uh, there have been varying pushbacks from domestic forces where it looked like Iran was ascendant just a few years ago. So Iran is now trying to hold its gains. So being emboldened is something really tough for them to do. There's not a lot of places where they can naturally expand into anymore. They, they've more or less reached all of their, their Shia ideological fellow travelers throughout the region. So the Iranians have somewhat reached a natural uh, limit of how far they can go. But with the Americans potentially retrenching from the Middle East, uh, the Israelis and the Emiratis can work together in proxy theaters to try to push the Israelis out. Um, places that there's potential is Emirati cooperation in Syria. The Emiratis were part of the proxy war in the, in the early days of the Civil War, cooperation in Yemen, and cooperation in Iraq. In those three places are, are areas where those, three, where those two countries, the Israelis and the Emiratis, could put their heads together in the absence of American power to take a more assertive stance against the Iranians without necessarily triggering a, a general war. Do you think the U.S. will further retrench from the Middle East if Joe Biden wins the election? I think there will be a further de-emphasis on the hard power aspect of America's experience there. I think that the Joe Biden administration is more likely to pick up the reins of the soft power uh, push to try to reorder the region on American terms. So diplomatically, a, a Joe Biden administration is much more likely to be less obsessed with the Iranian question than the Trump administration has. The Trump administration is laser focused on really just the Iranians and, and everything else kind of falls by the wayside or is transactional. So when they sell arms to the Saudis or the Emiratis or if they allow the, the Saudis to develop a nuclear program, the Trump administration views that as something of economic benefit. They don't really look at the, the larger strategic picture. That just doesn't interest them. Uh, I think the Biden administration, on the other hand, will become more interested in some of these longer-term issues, Chinese influence throughout the region, Russian influence throughout the region, Turkish behavior. All of those things become more important, but that doesn't mean that they're going to send more troops. It's likely at the moment that Biden will uh, attempt to do what Obama did and send in the diplomats to cut deals, 
restore some semblance of, of security architecture. Um, and in that sense, the Israeli-Emirati partnership may be an asset uh, in terms of here's one less area, one less conflict that they need to deal with. But on the other hand, the Israelis and the Emiratis are more willing to risk um, uh, upsetting the Iranians. They're less likely to want to put together another nuclear deal with the Iranians that might look like the one under Obama. Ryan, one final question here. If you were a betting man, who would you say will be the next Arab or Islamic country to sign a peace deal with Israel? Well, uh, and that's been the question for everybody, is is who's next? I I don't, to be fair and honest, I have been tracking the Israeli-Emirati relationship for over a decade of watching these signs build. The timing caught me by surprise. That, that, That kind of floored me at that timing. The actual act of normalization didn't. So timing is a huge question, and it boils down to diplomacy we can't always see. Surprisingly, this deal was kept very quiet, so it's always hard to say. But what I can say is there are at least three countries that I put on my list that have similar forces acting on them as the UAE did, as the UAE had. Um, and those countries are Oman, Bahrain, and Morocco are probably the ones that are most similar to the UAE in terms of a geopolitical profile, where they can explore normalization. And then the only factors that we have to think about are what do the king or the sultan think of, of that situation and, and how do they decide to drive it. may not do it very quickly. They may do it really slowly. Um, but those are the countries that have the most in common with the Emiratis and, and therefore are the most free to act towards normalization. Uh, they, they are the most free to act towards normalization. 2020 has certainly been a year of surprises, so anything is possible. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you very much for having me. We've been joined by Ryan Bull, a Middle East and North Africa analyst with a geopolitical risk firm, Stratfor. He's also written for Time and Salon, among other publications. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.